Matthew chapter 21. Read verses 1 through 11. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed there were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. In Galilee. It is important to consider the happenings of the days leading up to the Olivet Discourse in order to understand the very teaching that Jesus gives in the Olivet Discourse beginning in Matthew 24. Before Jesus described what would happen to the temple, Jesus went up to help his friends at Bethany after his friend Lazarus was ill and had died. According to one writer, the fact that he brought Lazarus back to life after he died explains why so many of the Jerusalemites were ready to welcome Jesus when he came to the city. What he had done in Bethany had clearly become known, at least in some quarters, in Jerusalem. This is a recognition of John's record of what happened after Lazarus was resurrected by Jesus. John in his gospel tells us that people were gathered after that amazing miracle and Jesus was recognized as the Messiah. So we have those traveling with Jesus and the growing number of people from the city gathering east of Bethany And both groups are praising Jesus as Messiah. When we see that recognition, we get a better picture of what's happening here in Matthew 21. It leads us to this very context and the content of the triumphal entry. If we're going to listen to Jesus' words about what will happen to the temple and what is going to take place in some near future and far future events, then we're also going to have to recognize that leading up to that message, there were some very important things that took place in the life of Christ and his followers. One of those most important things is recognized here in Matthew chapter 21. There was this gathering of people. 
If we take John's record and we take the record here in Matthew and we look at the context of Luke as well and Mark, we see that the gathering of these two groups is what ushers in the context of our Messiah. In one sense, there were already people following the Lord Jesus. They were his disciples. They were walking with him. They were listening to him teach. In another sense, because Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, you, you can only imagine news of a resurrection. That kind of travels fast, right? Even without the internet. So there's people east of Bethany hearing of this news and those groups of people, they start going, whoa, wait a second, who is this? What, what is all this about? And these groups are gathering. This picture in Matthew 21 gives us a sense of what is unfolding. It's a very important context to the life of our Lord Jesus on this earth. Firstly, this morning, recognize Jesus was publicly hailed as the true Messiah. Jesus was publicly hailed as the true Messiah. And he was hailed according to scriptural prophecy. What you see in this text is, is that the reason they are heralding these truths or they're they're hailing Jesus, they're worshiping him, is not something abstract. Matthew points out to us that this is done by scriptural prophecy. Even in the very happening surrounding this entry of Jesus uh, into Jerusalem, Jesus gives some directions. He says, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Well, why would that need to happen? What does that have to do with the Messiah? Well, Jesus points out to them that even if someone questions you, go ahead. Tell them why you're here. The Lord has need of them. They will give it to you. And the reason they will give it to you is based specifically on scriptural prophecy about the Messiah. This is from Zechariah 9. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey. Jesus' Messiahship was ushered in by use of a donkey. That's an interesting way, way to hail someone as Messiah and King, isn't it? That's not the, the normal thing you would think of. One writer notes that normally when you think of a king being hailed and being worshipped, that he's, he's brought in on a chariot or on a war horse. You may have seen uh, depictions of some of the great generals riding on their horses. Not just American generals, Roman generals, riding on their horses, some in chariots. But here we see Jesus hailed as Messiah and King in the context of being ushered in on a donkey. One writer said, Is the fact that the King is a man of peace? 
that is distinctive. This is why he's on a donkey. In antiquity, a king would not normally enter his capital riding on a donkey. He would ride in proudly on a war horse, or perhaps he would march in ahead of his troops. But here he's represented as a king of peace. That donkey is not a a normal carrier of a king, but the donkey represented the ultimate king of peace. Another writer says a donkey was the animal of a man of peace. It would be used by a priest or a merchant or an eminent citizen. It is specifically called a beast of burden that Jesus rode into the city And the way he did was a significant affirmation of his character and his purpose. He was going to be the king of peace. There's a recognition that you have to see before we get to the Olivet Discourse, what Jesus is setting up is his kingdom of peace. The context of God bringing peace between himself and men. Because of the fall. The sin of Adam and Eve. Men and women by nature are rebellers against God. They may claim God in some way. They may use his name in some way. They may try to invoke his help in one thing or another. But to actually bow before the one true living God and say... I will trust no other but you. I will follow your words and your words only. The heart of sinful mankind does not do that. Left to ourselves, we rebel and we kick against him. It has caused us to be at enmity with God. It is often a very difficult thing to understand that not only are we rebelling at God and we are at enmity against him, but those who have rebelled in all of their sinfulness, you and I have to understand God is at enmity with us. Scripture teaches this plainly in multiple places. God hates sin. God is at enmity with rebels against him. How is there ever going to be peace unless someone ushers it in? What the Lord Jesus was about to do was not just to simply talk about some near future and far future prophecy. But he's being hailed here as Messiah and King to say that he is bringing a reconciliation that goes beyond the bounds of anything that mankind has ever seen. No king has ever brought the kind of peace that Jesus is going to bring. There were kingdoms that had peace and unity among those kingdoms for different times and different spaces, and yet none of those kingdoms was was perfectly peaceful. There's a lot of times that the Roman Empire, although it took over quite a large stretch of land mass and people groups, people would talk about the Roman peace. But if you read Roman history, you recognize there was not perfect peace in the Roman kingdom. 
There was lots of difficulty, political difficulty. There was always a changing of the guard. There was always a a frustration between the common person and the political uh, people of the day. Uh, The Caesars had their own wacky ideas of world and life. The, The amount of just horrific sinfulness that the Caesars brought about in the context of their court. It was not really a kingdom of peace. What the Lord, do, the Lord Jesus would do would bring a real peace, not just in an earthly sense, in a far future sense, but he was actually going to bring peace between God and his people. Luke recognizes this in his recording of the triumphal entry. He says in verse 19, 38, they were shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The Lord Jesus was not going to just be bringing a peace that was some earthly peace, but this was peace in heaven. This is peace that the whole of the cosmos would be reconciled. This is peace that brings God and man in relationship once again in a way they had not been since the fall of Adam and Eve. Do you and I really understand the holiness of God? Do you really understand how much God hates sin? Do you really understand that not even one little molecule of sin can be brought into the presence of God and Him not hate it and Him not in some way judge it and condemn it? Don't you see even the little bitty molecules in your own life of sin? Life would be easier for me if I didn't see those things in me. I wish I could live in some kind of world where I could just put away the idea that I I still have remaining sin, even if it in its smallest vestiges. Things that go through our minds that could not even be brought into the presence of God without being judged and condemned. The smallest bits of anger. You know the old adage, don't don't cry over spilled milk. You just had one of those days at the house and your child spills milk. It's really not that big of a deal, but yet somehow it becomes really a big deal. And this frustration that turns into some kind of anger. Why? Why did this have to happen now? We may not do that loudly. We may not sound that loudly, but in our brains... 
We're kicking back at the providence of God. We're kicking back at the order of things. We're kicking back and rebelling and we're saying, this is not the way I wanted it. I wanted it different. And why did you do this, God? That's our heart. Even those little small vestiges, it's our heart. Who in the world could write that? Humans like us who have that kind of sin in our hearts that we're rebelling against God and we're kicking against him and we're at constant battle and enmity with God. Who in the world could write that? Only a king of peace. A king of peace like no other. He's going to bring peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The Zechariah prophecy tells us that he's being ushered in as this king, this king of peace. And just as God had ordered just as the Lord Jesus had instructed, the disciples went, they found the animal, and all was put right into purpose. Don't you find that a little bit interesting? Because there's so many times when we're set to do something in our minds or we give some instructions and, and, and we give it to somebody and then, then lo and behold... Nothing really works out the way we said it would. This king of peace is ushered in by scriptural prophecy, but it's scriptural prophecy that he preaches in the moment about himself. There's no other king of peace like that. Lots of kings have stood up and made lots of projections and lots of statements. Lots of presidents and rulers have made lots of projections and statements. But here, this king of peace, he not only understands the prophecy, he preaches the prophecy and he preaches it about himself. And then it works out exactly according to plan. That lets me know that this king knows more about peace and how to bring peace than anybody else ever could. And it tells me, it guarantees me because he knows these things and can speak them and then they happen exactly that the peace that he intends, it will come. This is going to be so important when we get in the Olivet Discourse to recognize that disciples have already seen this and these, these images that they're being given about what will be near future and far future prophecy, the context of it, they will have to really pay attention because they've already seen Jesus use prophecy properly and it's been said of himself and he spoke it of himself and it happened exactly as he said it would. Go find this donkey. When you go to this town, find this donkey. And when it's there and they ask you, say, the Lord has need of him. And sure enough, they ask, what are you doing? 
And he said, oh, the Lord has need of them. Oh, okay, you go ahead and take it then. And there they go. This is a different king of peace. This is a different Messiah than any could have imagined. As a result of the donkey, these animals, there's a debate about this phrase. I, I know that. And, you know, people want to talk about is it two animals or one? And, and the context here of Matthew, I think he's giving a sense to what's called the Hebrew parallelism of, of what is happening with bringing the animal before them. And, and it's not in the sense for us to be so worried about the donkey and the colt as much as it is to recognize that the two in its context and its whole is brought. And in this sense, Jesus rides in on the animals. And when he does so, look at what happens in verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We see here that this Messiah, he was showered with praise as the promised king. He was ushered in as the king of peace on this donkey. And here he is showered with praise as the promised king. In this moment, this is a recognition of the context of Psalm 118, but it's also that which is pulled from Psalm 118. And we're seeing that these people are actually using Scripture and calling Jesus according to promise and prophecy from the Old Testament itself. The crowds were doing this. They were the ones who followed and they were the ones who were shouting. He was praised as the son of David. Hosanna! Uh, to use the word Hosanna as an exclamation in one sense as to say, save us! That's pretty particular language. Most of the time when we use the word in Hosanna in the church today, we just kind of use it as some kind of expression of uh, joy. Um, but it has a very specific context to it. It's the idea of save us. It's as if they're crying out, using the word Hosanna, if it were us using it in our English sense, we would be going, save us, save us. Son of David, promised one, save us. As they're making these declarations, these declarations are understood as being elements of supplication. They're calling out, praying for this king to save us, right? It's a supplication. Please do this. 
but they're also giving him adoration. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Notice when they use this scripture, they're pulling this forward. It's not only being praised as the son of David, the one who is the promised king, save us, save us, but it's praised as the sent one from Jehovah. If he's sent from Jehovah, that means he has a greater purpose than just conquering something in the moment. There's a wider context to everything that he will do. They are proclaiming him as God's representative, Jehovah's representative, one who would set forward the divine purpose. Luke and John both include the king in this part of the crowd's cry. And although Matthew does not use the expression, it is implied. It was because they foresaw a Galilean king that the crowd of pilgrims got so excited. They saw a Galilean king. Galilee was of the promise of the Old Testament and the prophets. The one who would come. This is how he's... he's, Recognized as, as one from Nazareth. You can kind of build in your mind the idea. When you were younger and somebody you know, promised that they would give you a gift. Um, I, I was with some friends this past week because of the passing of one of my, my best friends since I was 12 years old. And I was with his family. And one of his granddaughters, she came up to me, and um, I had uh, a little gift that I gave her. And uh, she said, will I ever see you again? She calls me Uncle Brandon, even though she barely knows me. Um, and I said, yes, we'll see each other again. I said, Lord willing, I'll, I'll see you next summer. There's a, supposed to be a gathering, and we'll see them hopefully. And she said, would you promise me when I see you again if you, you would bring me a gift then too? <laughs> and I said, you know what, we'll find something for you. Now, I guarantee you, when I see that little girl in August, what's she going to be thinking about? that I told her I would be bringing her a gift, right? I promised her, didn't I? Beth, you've got to help me remember that. <laughs> Here's these people. They've heard the reading of God's Word down through the ages passed along to them. In their generations, they've heard of a promised Messiah who will bring peace, one who is sent from the Lord. And after they had heard the news and some of them seen the evidence that Lazarus was raised from the dead, after they had heard the preaching of Jesus, they had seen the miracles 
See, you see what we're doing here? We're building a case. We're seeing the compiling of all of this over time. We just don't show up at the Olivet Discourse and then make some pronouncements about whatever prophecy there may be. There's a building of the case. And here's these people. They're saying, no, no, no. The case has been built. We see Him. The King of Peace. Hosanna in the highest. They're saying it's the promised one. When we recognize this properly, that the Lord Jesus was sent as the very Son of God, He should be praised as such. And only by way of promise can there be peace between God and man. If God had not made a promise, there would be no peace. You know why? Because you and I could, make, could promise to make peace between us and God, but what would we do? We would fail. Why? Because we would be interested in ourselves. But God promised to make peace, and He promised it through His Son. He promised it through His Son as the one true Messiah and King. Now sadly, there are certainly people in this group who did not really truly believe the Messiah, especially after they had seen the context. But it gives us a sense of understanding, just a little taste of recognizing who Jesus is as the promised Messiah, that all in His presence would lay these coats and these palm fronds down as he comes and he marches over them on the back of this donkey. Here's the king of peace. Well, lastly this morning in the text, verses 10 and 11, when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth in Galilee. Well, we have to recognize here, he was acclaimed as the prophet of scriptural prophecy. He was not only the Messiah and king of scriptural prophecy, but he's acclaimed as the prophet of scriptural prophecy. Now, this is not the fullest sense of that. There's other places we could see it in the New Testament. But just see, just, just for a moment here, this, this addition of that phrase in verse 11, this is the prophet Jesus. It's a declaration. And he was more than an Old Testament prophet because they were saying he was sent from Jehovah. Isn't that interesting? The, the idea of him being called out as a prophet here, he's being called out that way, but it's done right after he's recognized and praised as one who is sent from the Lord. So he was more than an Old Testament prophet. One writer says they may have meant the great prophet like Moses who was to arise in the last time, Deuteronomy 18.15, and that this prophet was Jesus. But the twelve knew more than this. Speaking of the disciples, the twelve, they knew more than this. 
For Peter had saluted Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Just a little bit earlier in Matthew 16. Remember that whole question section between Jesus and and a few of the disciples? And what does he say? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. Even some of these outside the inner circle of the disciples probably knew about this. The crowds in general would not have known about those statements. But those disciples and some who knew about those statements, they were right there watching as Jesus is coming in. And they're saying, whoa! They're getting a glimpse for a moment of prophecy being fulfilled right before their eyes and they're seeing it happen. you got to be kidding me. I mean, some of these towns and some of these places, they've not wanted to hear from Jesus. They've not really wanted to hear from him unless he performed a miracle. And now we've got groups gathering because of this miracle of Lazarus. And now as they're gathering around, they're beginning to praise him. And they're saying, calling out, save us, save us. The one who is sent from the Lord, the promised one. You are him, save us. And the disciples are seeing that and going, wow. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Not only is he acclaimed as the prophet of scriptural prophecy, being more than an Old Testament prophet, but he revealed God's will of decree and fulfilled God's eternal purpose in and of himself. As a part of God's will of decree, the Son would come and the Son would be acclaimed and the Son would be that who would walk on this earth. And here Jesus is doing it and he's doing it according to God's will of decree and he's doing it perfectly and he's doing it in every way exactly as God had designed. That which was foretold is happening. And Jesus himself is fulfilling God's eternal purpose and he's doing it in and of himself. Being of the same mind of God, the same will of God. Just as the Father has life in himself, I've been granted of God to have life in myself, is what Jesus said. I and the Father are one, is what Jesus said. Even though the Pharisees would deny Jesus is the prophet, the Messiah. Right here in this moment, all of their denial, all of their fussing and fighting, all of their trying to kill Jesus, it's amazing. Apparently, whatever they were doing had very little effect. One writer puts it that way and he says, He was and is indeed a prophet, for he revealed and reveals the will of God to man. Note how in the present connection he is represented both as the fulfillment of prophecy, 21, 4, 5, and 9, and as being himself a yes, the prophet, 21, 11. He fulfills the prophecy, as we've already talked about, and he is the prophet. Only the Son of God can do this. It ought to give us great comfort in understanding 
Jesus being lifted up to this place. He's coming as the king of peace. Now in weeks ahead, we'll spend some time looking scripturally at what that means in a broad context and an even more narrow context. But at least in this morning, we have to recognize these three things in closing. Number one, Jesus is the eternal king of all creation. I don't want you to forget here that we're looking at a moment in time where he's recognized as Messiah and King. But that recognition comes in time, but it doesn't change who Jesus is outside of time. There's never a time when the Son was not. There's never a time when the Son did not exist. So therefore, he's always been eternal King. With the Father and with the Spirit. Before we ever talk about the eternal kingship of Christ and what it means and reigning and ruling on the earth and all of those types of things, we have to recognize who he is and who he's always been. What we see happening here is a recognition of those things in time because in time it has to happen for the promise to be fulfilled. So he's the eternal king of all creation. There's never been a time when he was not king. Even when Adam and Eve sinned, Jesus is eternal king. That, now, that, I, that boggles our minds a little bit. and We want to ask questions. I, I get it. But if he was granted from the Father to have life in and of himself, that means he's eternal as well. He and the Father are one, and the Father's eternal, then the Son's eternal, and the Spirit's eternal. So he's the eternal king, but number two, Jesus is the reigning king overall creation there is no quarter of all of creation that the Lord Jesus Christ does not reign and is not reigning presently now there may be perspectives on our ability to see his reign and recognize it because the things around us may not look as though Christ is reigning The scripture is very clear that he is the reigning king. When we think of this in a scriptural context, we have to recognize this in the sense of who he is as being the son of David. That was the point of him coming was to be reigning. David's kingdom was a, or David's kingship was a reigning kingship. He reigned over the nation of Israel. The Lord Jesus as the Son of God will not simply just reign over the nation of Israel. He reigns over all creation. Now because of the promise and the context of the covenant, 
that will have some difference in perspective. But it's not to be forgotten. And that brings me to number three. Jesus is the covenantal king who will reconcile all creation. Jesus is the covenantal king who will reconcile all creation. Firstly, there's the general sense of all creation being reconciled according to the work of Christ's kingship. What you see in the whole of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is a recognition of what is taking place through the actual work of Jesus Christ. There's a building promise and understanding being put before us. And here we're seeing a culmination of that in the triumphal entry that this promised one is going to reign, but he's going to reign in a covenantal sense. The whole purpose will be that there is a day coming where absolutely everything will be brought visibly, visibly will be brought under the reigning kingship of Christ. He's actually reigning. We just don't always see it that way. We don't always recognize it. We don't look at governments and nations and things that are going on around us and say, well, this looks like Christ is really ruling and reigning and people are really obeying him. But there's a coming day Well, that will be reconciled. It will be rectified. Justice will be meted out. Grace will be meted out. And that will be rectified in the whole of the cosmos. But it's done in a very specific sense as well because the covenant is about God saving his people. He will not lose one of them. All those who are in Christ will not inherit the new heaven and the new earth. They will be condemned for eternity. They will suffer the wrath of God for eternity. All those who are found in Christ Jesus according to his righteousness alone and nothing of themselves, they will not be lost and they will be brought in to the new heaven and new earth. This covenant and this covenant king are based on promise. What we see in a, a small sense here in a very small place in Jerusalem is just a slight little bitty taste of what it will be like for the people of God when he returns one day. The question is, do you and I really believe he's coming? First of all, do you believe he came? And do you believe he's coming again? While we're here on this earth, our hope is not built on anything that we have done or what we think we can do. Our hope is all built on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah by promise. Our hope is built on who he is and what he did and what he is doing and what he will do and by promise what he will finish. See, the Olivet Discourse is a part 
of this triumphal entry. It gives us just this glimpse right now of what is taking place. But the Olivet Discourse can't be divorced from this. For when we get into what is near future prophecy and far future prophecy, we'll have to recognize it in the context of what has happened in the triumphal entry. Will you and I bow before the king today? Will you worship and glory in him alone? Or will you be a person who kicks against and rebels and says, I'm going to do it my way. It's about me. I don't know your heart, but God does. And I pray that you'll bring your heart before him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I have no hope in and of myself to do anything of pure holiness or righteousness. I only have hope in your Son, Christ. And all my hope for this time of worship today is built upon him, the promised Messiah. Lord, will you please deal with our souls? There are some here today who would not bow their knee to you, would not bow their mind and their heart to you. Will you call them unto yourself by the power of your Holy Spirit? Lord, there are some of us who have been believers for many years. Will you calm our fears about the world around us? Give us strength and comfort in the truth of your Son, the Lord Jesus, as the eternal reigning and covenantal King. Not one thing is going to be outside of his purpose for his purpose is one with your purpose. Give us hearts to trust in him. Give us minds that we would serve him rightly according to your word, even in the world around us. We praise you for all that you will do in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.